So yes, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. And we're going to be in the whole chapter of Nehemiah 13 this morning, which means we are going to finish our series through Ezra, Nehemiah this morning that we started all the way back in August of last year. Next week, we're going to start a shorter sermon series uh, on the church before we go back to the New Testament for our next sermon series. And that'll probably start in the fall, but more on that, on that later. This morning, we're going to finish Nehemiah up to chapter 12. So far, things have had some, there's been some rocky moments in, in Nehemiah. But as of right now, like where we finished last week in chapter 12, things were, things were looking good. Things were looking up. Everything was looking good for the Jews. And at this point, you know, you must imagine that Ezra and Nehemiah must have been quite pleased and thankful to see the, the work of the Lord and the, the progress that they had made of not only rebuilding the city, but rebuilding God's people. That's the, that is by far the most important thing that they, un, they understand and know that they are rebuilding God's people, not just the city. And so the city was the tool in rebuilding the, the people. Unfortunately, one of the themes that we see that runs throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is there is this pattern of God's people being holy, pursuing obedience according to God's word, and then you turn the page over and it's the exact opposite, and you have the biggest morons leading them, or no one's leading them, and it does, they do exactly what humans do, and they do whatever is right in their sight, and whatever's right in their sight is always evil. And that's what they do. I mean, literally, it's like you, you turn the page and, and there it was. Uh, I mean, in, in a physical sense, if you just want to kind of maybe just see it, um, is I was driving in Savannah this week, and um, man, on one side of things, I mean, things just look down and, and, and just not good. And then literally, you turn the, the block, right? And it's like, boom, mansion, millionaire home, right? There's this down, and then there's built up and, and, and wealth, and and that dichotomy there is kind of like what we, what we see in, throughout the Bible is this unholy, disobedient, neglectful, and evil. And then turn the page, and there's holiness, and there's confession of sin, and turning toward the Lord. And what we see here, unfortunately, in chapter 13 is a continuation of that pattern, but the pattern ends upon sin. It ends with a, the, where the people embracing sin. And what we see in this chapter, as well as throughout the Bible, this pattern illustrates for us not just that this is their problem, but this is a human problem. This is, this is our problem. That we're not far from, that's not far from our own condition. The pattern of sin before Christ. So there's much for us to gain, but there's much for us to read. So let's, let's dive in. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1. 
on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Great story, Numbers 22, right? You can go back and look, read that later. It's fantastic. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. Verse 4. Now before this, Elishahib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to, to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, this is Nehemiah speaking, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Elishakib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe and the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shomiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds, for I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrrhenians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on this city? And now, now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, 
I commanded the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the city wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. For that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates and keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of the people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on the account of such women? Among many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Elishahib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established them, established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each to his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Isn't it kind of sad the way that Nehemiah has to end? I mean, it was such a high note last week. And it ends with the people giving in to sin and Nehemiah correcting them. I mean, one would hope that being the last chronological book of the Old Testament, that it would hopefully end in a good note, but it doesn't. You might remember the way that Ezra ended as well was not good. The sin of intermarriage was found out a few chapters earlier in Ezra, and Ezra ends with a list in fact, I think the, the name of the sermon was the list you don't want to be on. And that was a list you didn't want to be on, a list of those who were guilty of intermarriage. Virtually, these books end about the same. 
But despite how they end, within Ezra and Nehemiah, we, we have seen over and over again God's faithfulness to his promises to his people. The Lord had promised to bless his people, and here they are, in, back in the land, restored into the land of, of promise, the holy city being rebuilt, the, the worship at the temple being restored according to God's law. And all of this is due to God's steadfast love. He had never forsaken, forsook his people. They understood that. And they celebrated that, right? Back in, back in chapter 12, that was the, the celebration was of God's faithfulness and his, his goodness and his love. Now chapter 13 starts out a bit oddly because it states for us that from reading of the book of Moses, so the Old Testament that they had, the Old Testament law, it was established and had been established that that no Ammonites or Moabites were, they were not allowed to enter into the assembly. And he, they state the, the reason why from, from back then, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, and also the story from Numbers 22. This is why these two groups of people shall never be allowed into the temple, into worship, unless your name is Ruth. Unless you've repented, and Ruth is one of them, right? So the point is, of all of this separation, they were to be separate from the world. They were to be a distinct people, which is really amazing to me is this, is that even in their distinction and separation, they were still living there. All the other days of the week besides the Sabbath, they were allowed to do business and do business with these people, but they were still to remain distinct as God's people. And that's what the temple and these walls signified. Now, there are four issues of sin that arise in this chapter. And all of these issues arise while Nehemiah is out of town. Verse 6 shows that Nehemiah is out of town. He had the obligation to go back to King Artaxerxes and report back to him as the governor and all that has been going on. Now, the first issue that came up starts in verse 4. And this issue was... This priest named Elishahib, who was appointed to be over the temple to maintain the chamber that stored the grain and the frankincense and all of these things. He was in charge of maintaining that. Make sure everything in there was full, fresh, ready to go. But what does Elishahib do? He moves all of that stuff out, doing with it who knows what, and he allows a guy that he's related to Tobiah, does that name sound familiar? Tobiah, one of the very uh, one of the three that directly opposes God's people. This priest allows Tobiah, just because he's related to him, to move into the temple. You need a place to live, Tobiah. You want to come live in the city now that it's hip and going on and flourishing. Tobiah needs a place. Come move in the temple. We're family. Here's the penthouse suite of the city of Jerusalem. Talk about corruption. The second issue was that the portions of food and, and provisions that were committed to, back in chapter 10, 
They were committed to give to the Levites and the singers so that they could do their job and provide and worship and leading of worship of God's people in the temple and to make sure everything was ready to go for the sacrificial system. Those portions were not given and they were forgotten. It's been a while. I've, I've been giving long enough. Does my meager portion really matter? Who cares if I don't give? The consequences that was what? The Levites and the singers were like, we got to eat. We got to do something. We, we got to live. And so they went back out to their fields to grow what was necessary to provide for themselves and their families to, to survive. So here in these first two issues already, we see how worship over time, has become devalued and neglected, according to God's word. The third issue, and I bet we could have guessed that this one was coming, has to do with the Sabbath. In the New Testament, we find the, the Sabbath to be a totally different issue, don't we? But in the Old Testament, over and over again, God's people just neglect and forget the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath, and to keep it holy. Here in Nehemiah, it's not any different. Again, it's one of the first things that they, that they do, even though they covenanted back in chapter 10 that that's what they would not do, that they would keep the Sabbath. And so they begin working on that day. They begin trading and selling on the Sabbath, doing business with Gentiles on the Sabbath. Not good. And this isn't just corrupting worship again, but this is intermingling themselves with the world in the world's ways and them believing that they need to do this and that they cannot trust in the Lord that he will provide despite their not working on that day. And the last issue, unfortunately, you guessed it, is the sin of intermarriage. Again, this isn't racism or xenophobia, but it's about holiness. The warning had been issued over and over again that marrying yourself to God, to the world of sin, is idolatry. Becoming, and there the world's gods becomes your gods. Nehemiah illustrates it by talking about Solomon. This is Solomon, blessed by God, given by God almost everything that he could ever desire and ever want. Loved by God. And yet, his foreign wives, what did they do? They led him to sin. Nehemiah also tells us the consequence of this sin. He says, half of the children of those who have intermarried could not speak the language of Judah anymore. They couldn't speak Hebrew, which means that the future generation of people that should be distinct and separate are not. And they wouldn't even be able to understand the reading and the teaching of the scriptures. That's holiness at stake. This is a big deal. This is a huge problem. God's people have been given so much. 
They have been blessed. They have been provided for, given, loved in so many ways. God has been faithful through and through. But look what happens. Nehemiah returns back to Jerusalem. And when he, and when he sees all that has gone down since he's been gone, he goes right into reformation mode. He addresses one issue to the next, and he prays, God help me in between. They might have had revival in previous chapters, but in chapter 13, it tells us that reformation is never done. Reformation is never over with. Brothers and sisters, I believe this text is also showing us our simple reality that as the church, reformation is never finished. Our reformation isn't necessarily a reformation of theology, but the reformation of our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies that are being transformed by our theology. So I have three things that I want to show you from this chapter this morning that points to the reforming of ourselves and of our church. The first thing that I want you to see from this chapter comes as a, a warning. A warning to make no provision for the flesh. This is quoting from Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To put on, a, make provision for the flesh is to do things and to bring things into your life or to allow things to happen or be about or around certain things that will lead us to gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 13, 14 is an, is an exhortation to Christians to, to put on, to clothe themselves and Christ's righteousness so that your desires for sin and temptation to gratify the desires of the flesh is replaced with a desire, a joy, a satisfaction for Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That list isn't exhaustive. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who don't do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Making provisions for the flesh is putting yourself into positions and places and mindsets where you can be susceptible to the works of the flesh that are listed out in Galatians 5. And we cannot miss the warning there as well. To make no provision for the flesh. I think what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 13 is a people who, when given the chance, compromised. They were careless. They weren't vigilant as they should have been to the temptation that was still 
surrounding them and the temptation in their own hearts. They willingly jumped into the same traps. And Nehemiah says this. They willingly jumped into the same traps and pits of sin that their parents and that their grandparents and that their great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and so on and so forth jumped into. We often say that sin is something that I fell into. But the reality of it is that we didn't fall into sin. It didn't just happen to us. We willingly jump. Sure, temptation is there. It's enticing. It's desiring something that we want and entices the flesh. But it's not what makes us jump into the pit. They jumped in. Take the first issue that Nehemiah deals with. Here's this guy, Elisha Hib, the priest. A priest who should have known better not to let Tobiah, an enemy, a, a known enemy. I mean, Nehemiah says it. This list of guys, they are enemies. Tobiah, an Ammonite. No Ammonites are allowed in the temple. Elishahib, what is wrong with you? He's my family. And that was enough of an excuse for him to allow to, Tobiah and his family to, to move in. Elishahib did not just show up and Tobiah was just there squatting. He came in and he allowed Tobiah to live there. He made provision for the flesh because it was his family. It's the family thing to do. Blood is thicker than water. We've dealt with that in our text. And clearly this was sin. The second issue of forsaking the temple, not by giving the provisions for the Levites and the singers. Maybe, maybe the excuse was Tobiah is there, and if we give anything... Tobiah is like a mobster, if you haven't kind of figured. He's like, a, he's like leader of the mob here. And if Tobiah is there, he's just going to suck in all that they get because that's what mob, mobsters do. And maybe they were afraid that that's why. Maybe that's why they stopped giving. But either way, worship was severely hindered because the Levites, they had to go make provisions for themselves. The third issue, the absolute neglect of the Sabbath. And you can see in the description that, that Nehemiah gives of how much they, they made provisions. They opened the gates. It's not like they were jumping the walls. They opened the gates. They opened the doors. And it became business as usual. It only takes that one time of opening that gate. And opening that door. And lastly, the worst, the intermarrying. The unequally yoking themselves with the world through marriage, which has brought about that generation's corruption. And even worse than that, the corruption of the next generation had begun. Is that not the definition of making provision for the flesh? 
to desire those relationships over holiness. You see, these problems, they, they didn't just happen overnight or over a weekend trip that Nehemiah took, took back to go to Artaxerxes. No, Nehemiah was gone for a couple years. Some, some commentators even said that he was, up, he was gone to up, upwards to a decade or even 12, 12 years. Sin and corruption is a slow fade at times. How could they switch so, so quickly? Well, like we said, with one small compromise at a time. With one small compromise at a time, before you know it, the Sabbath is meaningless. And before you know it, Uncle Tobiah is living in the temple. The slow fade goes like this. Says, what can it hurt to let my uncle live and move in for a bit? I mean, if I scratch his back, he will scratch mine. Maybe it goes like this. Man, man things are really getting tight this month. We really can't afford to make our giving portion this month to the temple. I'm sure they won't miss it. Tomorrow's the Sabbath, but I really need to get this crop sold soon. And I know that them Tyrians, are, they're, they're going to be in town, and they pay big for grapes and figs. What's the Sabbath? What's, what's, what's one Sabbath that we miss and that we don't observe completely? We'll give a couple hours in the morning, but we've got to get this out. And maybe the last issue is a little bit harder to explain or justify, but I'll do my best. Man, that girl looks good. Where did she come from? I haven't seen her in this city before. She's a Moabite? Is her name Ruth? No? Oh, darn. God wants me to be happy, though, right? After all, being happy is important. What's, what's really the harm to everyone else if I marry her? It's my right. It's my personal choice. The justification for making provision of the flesh often goes like that, doesn't it? James speaks of temptation like this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There's a way that seems right to man, sin. But in the end, it leads to death. Yet we are called to make no provision for the flesh. Nehemiah comes in on the scene and he, he begins to systematically remove the provision from the people with a, a zeal for holiness. Uh, you got to love it. I mean, this, this is great, right? And, and, and it reads, chapter 13, and actually the whole book does, kind of reads like it's, this is Nehemiah's memoir, right? There's a lot of eyes and stuff like that. And I love how it says, like, he goes right into the temple, confronts, I mean, confronts, Elishahib, and then he goes in with his boys, and they begin to throw out Tobiah's furniture out of the temple. I mean, they're just chunking it out of the temple and say, you need some wood for the, for the, uh, uh, for the sacrifices? Here you go. Use this junk. 
Use Tobiah's junk. I love that. I love the flipping there. Tobiah the mobster, he's getting kicked out, ousted. This is eviction 101. Go in there, kick him out, throw their stuff out. Boom, Tobiah, you're gone. Second, Nehemiah confronts the officials on why they would let the offering stop and the portion stop. He says, guys, you see this, right? You see we're dwindling down low. Why aren't you going out telling people, hey, and preaching it and teaching, we need this stuff so that we can continue to, to worship and do these things. And then he begins to restore. He gets rid of the people who are not doing the job and puts in the right people to make sure, reliable people, as it says, that they will get the job done. He is what? Making no provision for the flesh, but provision for holiness. Third, again, he confronts the officials about the forsaking of the Sabbath, and he calls it evil. There's a couple times he uses this word, evil. That is a moral word. It's this word evil. He's squarely blaming them. What you are doing is evil. Verse 17, I don't think he's overstating it. I don't think he's overstating the moral judgment of using this word because anything that is directly opposing the revealed will of God, the word of God, and it destroys human flourishing is flat out evil. That is evil. We need to have enough courage and truthfulness, and light, according to God's word, to know, recognize, and call evil what is evil. So Nehemiah removes all the provision of sin by ordering the shutting of the gates. I love that. He says, shut the gates, shut the doors, put guards on the doors, put guards at the gates while the Sabbath is happening until after the Sabbath. I love how also in verse 21, he goes to the Gentiles that show up to the walls as if they're ready to come in. And what does he say? And he says, don't come in, don't try, or you're going to get it. And what happens? They leave, and they don't come back. Removing the provision by killing the temptation. And by killing the temptation, you will set a precedent to not desire sin but the Lord. And lastly, Nehemiah cursed. I don't know if you all saw that, but he cursed. And he beat and he pulled the hair out of some of those who had intermarried. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Now, it may sound as if Nehemiah had just lost his mind. He gave into a fit of rage. But I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. Because Look at Jesus who came into the temple, the same temple, where there was a sacrifice flea market going on in the place of Gentiles and the women were supposed to be allowed to come and worship. And Jesus flips over tables yelling. He makes a whip and begins to beat people out of the temple driving them out of the temple. Now, I know Nehemiah isn't Jesus. I get that. But certainly in times, in righteous anger, God's man needs to be a man and stomp out sin. Again, 
This is showing us the reality and the seriousness by which we need to make no provision for the flesh and to kill sin, to stomp it out. Because what Nehemiah knew, Nehemiah knew, is what he had seen, what was already taken place. And that is what drove his intensity toward these sins. Because these sins were slowly killing this people. And because it was evil. Do we know this? Do we know that marrying ourselves with corruption and sinful things and abominations to the Lord are evil? And will also have the same effect of killing us as it did on God's people. When I say kill sin, I mean we kill the desires of sin. We kill it by the preaching of the gospel into our hearts, into our lives. You may need to get rid of your phone, your television, whatever it is. Make no provision. But what you need also and more is the preaching of the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Confess your need for God's grace to transform you and to replace those sinful desires with Jesus Christ. And you will find yourself to be satisfied above all. So this passage first is serving as a, a warning shot across the bow of our hearts and our lives. The dear Christian, to, to be careful and to make no provision of the flesh. Make no compromises. When you make a provision of the flesh, no wonder we sin. And that sin becomes a habit we say that we struggle with. We need fewer Christians with broken ankles from jumping into the pit willingly. And we need more Christians with bruised knees and scraped hands and elbows from fighting not to fall into the pit. The continual reformation always starts, brothers and sisters, in our own hearts. That we are always confessing sin and that we're always striving to make no provision for the flesh. Amen? The second thing that I want you to see this morning from this chapter is that you are your brother's keeper. Of course, you may know that line. Cain killed his brother. The Lord came to him and asked in Genesis chapter 4, Where's your brother, Cain? Cain's responded, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain, not only murdering his brother, casted off all responsibility for Abel. Who cares? I'm number one. But is that true? Is that true for Christians? Of course not. We will, we as the church together are responsible to and for one another. Later on this morning, we will read our church covenant, which is a reminder to us each month that we are together and that we are responsible for and to one another. Nehemiah, from chapter 1 
to chapter 13 takes responsibility for his people. Not just because he becomes the governor, but because this is his people. These are his brothers. These are his sisters. He, he loves them. He wants the best for them. And he wants God to be glorified through them. He becomes their godly leader who prays, a leader who acts, a leader who stands up though facing opposition, a leader who cares, a godly leader who turns God's people to God's word, a leader who leads them to confess sin, a leader who leads them to make specific commitments, a leader who keeps leading them when things get messy among God's people that he's trying to lead. That's chapter 13. Leadership is about getting tough when the people turn away. But what does Nehemiah do? Well, we've already said it. He confronts them. He doesn't let it go. He confronts them. He goes right into the temple. He goes right at the priests. He goes right at the officials. Confronts them. He goes right at those who are intermarried to make things right and to bring about righteousness when the people... He confronts them with truth, and he points out the blind spots in their lives. He appropriately disciplines them in certain cases, and he corrects them, and he leads them in repentance. Leadership, as we've seen throughout Nehemiah, is about fearing God more than others do. Leadership is about revering God's name and his holiness and his glory. Leadership is about taking pleasure in who God is and what he is like. Leadership is about making the chief end of your life to help instructing and challenging others to revere God's name as well and to lead them into delighting in God. Nehemiah was a leader. Nehemiah, as a leader, was his brother's keeper. Now, you don't have to be a leader in the sense that we think that leaders are to be your brother's keeper. But all of us should have the same desire for God's name, the, the revering of God's name, and the hallowing of God's name to be not only among our own heart, our own life, but also among God's people. A desire to fight for holiness, not just for ourselves, but for your brothers and your sisters, for the glory of God. Now when we see a pit in front of a brother or a sister, that we will warn them, and we will grab their hand and pull them back and, and pull them away to the glory of God. Could you just sit around if a Tobiah of today was allowed to move into our temple, the church? If a heresy or wokeness such as CRT or social justice warrior elements just moved up into our attic to live, would you tolerate that? I'm confident that you would not. But what if someone was neglecting the worship of the Lord? The gathering of the saints or not concerned in growing with the Lord and knowing the Lord? 
What if you saw a brother in Christ who's about to give themselves into marrying the sin of lust, adultery, or other form of fornication? Or to a sister who is filled with envy or anger? The list could go on and on. But the question is, is do you have the courage to lovingly confront them, even at the cost of your own reputation? I believe the the process of Matthew 18 applies here, especially implying to us that we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. To take the initiative, to go to the brother, to the sister, to, to warn them, to help them, to disciple with them, to walk with them hand in hand. Do we want to answer the question like Cain, if you knew the sin of another and yet did nothing, am I my brother's keeper? I'm convinced that a church that does not care for one another like this is already like a people of Nehemiah 13, where most have already compromised. So why would we drag the sin of others into light at the risk of exposing my own. Loving and caring for one another like this is how a church, as God's people, can always be reforming because it's it's a reformation in the gospel, in truth, and in love for one another, for them and for ourselves to bring glory to God in every way possible. Lastly, and this is by far, I think, the most important point, we need Jesus. I believe that if you are growing and you are maturing as a Christian, then you must be keenly aware of your faults and all of your failures. And and it probably sounds pretty daunting to hear that you are your brother's keeper when you know well enough how far short you have fallen. I understand that. The Bible understands that. Jesus understood that. We need grace. We need the gospel. We need Jesus. The sins of the people of Nehemiah 13 struggled with, jumped into, are the same sins that the the people during Joshua's day or during the judges struggled with. There's nothing new. These are the same things that have been going on since the beginning. But we have received the promise in Genesis 3.15. As the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord has promised that he would send one who would bruise the head of the serpent. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we see God working his sovereign plan to bring about his son, to bring salvation to his people, and to set them free from the bondage of sin. Ezekiel 34, we we read this morning, it it was an indictment against these terrible shepherds. But at the end there, there was this promise that says that God himself would come and be our good shepherd. 
Nehemiah was a, was a pretty good shepherd of his people. But he was not the good shepherd. He could not fix them. He could not change their hearts. He could not transform them and make them new into new creations. He could not soften the heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh that beats to the glory of God. You can hear in Nehemiah's prayers, there's three short prayers in chapter 13, you can kind of hear that anguish. You can hear that, that need for the Lord, that mercy, that love, and that favor, because the sin of these people is great, and it's constant, and it's frustrating. It's over and over and over again, and it sounds so familiar, right? It sounds so familiar, because we also need Jesus. And although Nehemiah, the old of the chronological New Testament, this is it. It points to us that the new was coming. History will start again in the Bible with John the Baptist who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God sent his son so that we can be redeemed from sin and death. We can be redeemed from sin and death. The heart that is made new. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 3, says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Enslaved to sin. Making provisions for the flesh. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. What? We were enslaved. And he's going to redeem us, that we would be adopted as sons. And because you are sons, verse 6... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Well, that's never happened before. That's not in Nehemiah. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Always reforming is always turning our hearts and our lives to Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for his grace alone and for his mercy. We look to Christ alone. I love this verse. John chapter 1 verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We're very much like this people. We need his grace upon grace. And he gives his grace upon grace.
But there will come a day when you will no longer be called upon to repent of your sin and you will no longer need correction. Come, Lord Jesus. Only then will our reforming cease. But until then, let us resolve to always be reforming, to love one another, to confront our sin head on, to respond humbly to it, to repent, and to lean upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that we have been reminded of the one who has conquered sin and death. And by him alone have we been saved. And so help us to lean upon him and to trust in him alone. Not in our own fruit, not in our own works, not in our own righteousness, for those things will fail us. Let us always be looking to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking forward to the day that he returns. When we will need no reforming. We would need no repenting. But only beholding. Lord, we thank you for Ezra and Nehemiah. And we thank you for the blessing of the time and the weeks that we've had together to be in it. We pray that it would produce lasting fruit, Lord, that only you can do. Only that you can do. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.